Hi, and welcome to The Crime Pod. I'm Caitlin. And I'm Sam. So, Samantha, you asked, so I delivered. Um, You mentioned this in a case a couple of weeks ago, so I have researched it and have the story for you all. So this week, I'm going to be telling you the case of Stephen Lawrence. Samantha, are you aware of this case? I take it as soon as you mentioned it a couple weeks back. I am, and thank you for getting it together so quickly. That's I'm okay. really looking forward to you telling me more about it. <laughs> um, Stephen's been on my list for a long time, actually, because it's a very kind of infamous, one of the most infamous racist hate crimes in the UK, um, and I just haven't never got round to properly getting into it, really. So I'm looking forward to telling you the story because I didn't actually know this much detail about it and there is a lot of detail. So Stephen was born in Greenwich District Hospital on the 13th of September 1974. It's, um, sorry, it's Greenwich. Oh, right. Greenwich. Okay. It's Greenwich. Sorry, just to say. In the UK? Yeah, Greenwich in London. All right, okay. Yeah, yeah. they have a good market. Just Okay. Yeah, he was born on the 13th of September 1974 to Jamaican parents who had immigrated to the UK in the 60s. So his father, Neville, was a carpenter and his mother, Doreen, worked in a special needs school. Now, he was brought up in Plumstead, which is southeast London. Now, this is kind of like a hilly suburb known for its big green spaces. Um, it's got walking paths, like a wooden slade ravine. Um, it's obviously got loads of like, outdoory bits. Um, the high streets described as having a handful of classic pubs, um, convenience stores, Chinese and Indian takeaways. I mean, all for that. That sounds like a good place to go, if you ask me. Now, the population in 2011 was 16,000. So it's probably just a bit more from that now. He was the eldest of three children, the others being Stuart, who was born in 76, and Georgina, born in 82. Now, he loved being a big brother. They were a very close-knit family, went to church together, everything like that. During his teenage years, Lawrence excelled at running. He actually competed for the local Cambridge um, Harriers Athletic Club and he appeared as an extra in Denzel Washington's film for Queen and Country. Now, he was studying technology and physics at Blackheath Bluecoat School and he also did English English language and literature at Woolwich College. He was hoping to become an architect, so he's a very intelligent boy. Um, His mum said he had a strong and positive attitude about his future. As we just kind of said, he was really into sports and he was really sociable and just described as gentle. He had to juggle a lot. Obviously, he had an active social life and his schoolwork, family commitments, part of employment. But he also really had an ambition to use talent for math, art and design, as I said, to go on to be an architect because he wanted to have a positive impact on his community. So I believe he wanted to be an architect to then support in the community. So our story takes place on the 22nd of April, 1993. Stephen spent the day of the 22nd of April at Blackheath Bluecoat School. So that's the school he went to. He then went and visited the shops in Lewisham and travelled by bus to his uncle's house in Grove Park. He was joined there by his best friend, Dwayne Brooks, and they played video games and left about 10pm. After realising that their normal bus, the 286, which they would normally travel on, would get them home too late, they decided to either change for the 161 or the 122 on Wellhall Road. So they got on that bus, got off, and they waited at Wellhall Road at 10.25pm. Now, they walked along Wellhall Road to the junction of Dixon Street to see if they could see a bus coming. So he was like, look, I'll go, Dwayne, you just wait at the bus stop. So 
Dwayne waits and Stephen goes to check for the bus. Dwayne was stood on Well Hall Road between Dixon Street and the roundabout um, when he saw a group of six white youth crossing at Rochester Way, which is across the side of the street um, on the zebra crossing moving towards them. After just after 10.38pm, he called out to ask Stephen if he could see the bus coming. Dwayne claimed that he then heard one of the boys saying racial slurs and they began shouting abuse and laughing. They all quickly crossed the road and, quote, engulfed Stephen. The six guys basically forced Stephen down to the ground and he was stabbed by the depth of, to the depth of about five inches on both sides of the front of his body in the right collarbone and the left shoulder. Both wounds severely, like, severed his arteries before penetrating a lung. Stephen lost all feeling in his right arm and his breathing was constricted. However, while he was losing blood from the four major blood vessels, Dwayne had began running and shouted for Stephen to run as well, and Stephen did. He managed to run for part of it. While the attackers disappeared down Dixon's Road, Dwayne and Stephen ran in the direction of Sh- um, Shooter's Hill, it's called. Stephen collapsed after running 130 yards and bled to death soon afterwards. The pathologist recorded that Stephen managing to run this distance with a partially collapsed lung was a, quote, testimony to his physical fitness. Dwayne ran to call an ambulance, and while an off-duty police officer stopped by his car, he covered Stephen with a blanket. He was taken to Brook General Hospital by 11.05, but he was already dead at the scene. Police didn't try to do any CPR. They saw the blood at the scene and just knew that he would be dead, so they didn't do any CPR. They also thought it was a head injury because of the amount of blood, but I also want to add that the officers at the scene actually had no medical training, so they would not have been able to do CPR if they wanted to. What's your thoughts on that, Svanta? I think that's ridiculous and I am all for everyone, and I mean everyone, to be able to do basic first aid. Um, everybody should be taught in school as well about CPR, etc. Maybe how to, you know, sort out a wound. I'm not telling, saying, oh, it's a broken arm. Right, let's fix it. But I'm saying stop the bleeding or, you know, just help a little bit. Um, and mm-hmm, yeah, mm-hmm. even with our like rainbows, which is, you know, guides and stuff, they're like five years old and a wee bit older. Like we've done first aid with them as well. Like I'm all pro for it. If that was, yeah, short story, but yeah. No, no, totally agree. I think, I think everybody should have some basic first aid training. Um, just, I think it makes society a lot more helpful. Mm-hmm. Now, Stephen didn't know his attackers and they didn't know him. This was just a simply, he was there, basically. Dwayne gave a good description of the men. However, the police first accused him. Wonder why they basically accused Dwayne. Some actually ignored him and just fully treated him with suspicion. The police didn't go looking for anyone or secure the murder scene. So the Met launched an investigation and found three eyewitnesses. All three witnesses at the bus stop at the time said the attack was basically very sudden and short However, none of them were later available, um, able to identify the suspects. In the days following the murder, several residents came forward to provide names of suspects. An anonymous note was actually left on a police car windscreen in a telephone box naming a local gang as the five main suspects. They were known to the police for previous racial attacks. This was Gary Dobson, brothers Neil and Jamie Arcourt, Luke Knight and David Norris. So the brothers were known as the leaders of this gang, basically. So that's Neil and Jamie. Said to be um, said that they were sorry, fascinated with the Cray twins, which I just think is a bit ridiculous to be honest. It's like grown men or even grown boys, I don't actually know their exact age, but get a grip. Luke apparently just got yeah. into the wrong crowd, he just kind of ended up in that gang. David was actually a gangster's son, so he was quite aggressive and linked to a lot of incidents in the area. And I don't really know um, much 
about Gary. He's one I've kind of struggled to find information about. The five suspects were previously involved in racist knife attacks around the Eltham area. So four weeks before Lawrence's death, Dobson and Neil Accord were actually involved in like a racist attack on black teenager Kevin London, who they verbally abused and attempted to stab. But he was obviously okay. Neil's brother Jamie was also accused of stabbing teenagers Darren Whittam in May 1992 and Darren Giles in 1994, causing Giles to actually have a heart attack due to his injuries, which is crazy. Like, I actually didn't think that could happen. Like, I don't obviously mean smarts aren't very good on the medical terms, but <laughs> I didn't know that you could, like, have a heart attack because of, like, an injury. I think so. I think it's like as well as, you know, it could happen days and days and weeks after. And if, here's a fun fact, if you die one year and one one day after an attack, but because of obviously problems like from that attack, you don't get charged. I found that out this week. Not because I was part of that problem. But, um, yeah, I was doing some research because of something. It might come up in a case in the future. But, yeah, one year and one day. So, say you had a heart attack, like, a year and a half later, and it was because of something right. I did to you, okay. then I, I wouldn't get charged for it. Yeah, because if I watched it, a programme once, and there was a woman that was it was a victim of an acid attack, and the guy went to jail, basically. He then got out, but she then died due to her injuries, so he then went back to jail for murder. Hmm. Check the time frame. Um, it, oh, I think it might have actually changed. I'll need to get my facts right. But um, Yeah, this was um, not a fun fact. We're now was... all more confused. Yes, okay, but half a fun fact. Keep that in right. mind. I'll try right. and sort myself. <laughs> Hopefully this doesn't become a weekly feature, but let's move on. <laughs> um, so the stabbings of the victims, Gurdip Banghal and Stacey Benfield, which both occurred in March 1993 in Eltham, were also linked to Neil and Jamie Court, David and Gary. So you're thinking what I'm thinking. Okay, there's your suspects. They've been named. They've got all this previous history. Go and arrest them because this is within three days of the crime. Beautiful. However, this is not what happened. Detective Superintendent Brian Whedon, the officer who had been leading the murder investigation from its third day and would ultimately lead the murder squad for the whole 14 months, explained to a public inquiry in 1998 that part of the reason that no arrests had taken place by the fourth day after the killing, which was the 26th, is that he had not known the law allowed arrest upon reasonable suspicion, which is a basic point of criminal law. He didn't know that if you just suspected something and you didn't have concrete evidence, you just had all these witnesses saying we think it's them, he didn't realise you could arrest them for that. Even I knew that. I am a superintendent. Yeah, and then can you not keep them for like 24 hours and if you have no solid evidence, get rid of them? Spoiler, but we're going to have a lot of kind of shock issues with the police in this case. Um, it kind of reminded me a lot about the ones we've done before when it comes to race crimes. They just don't seem to have a bloody clue what they're doing. So anyway, a police photographer actually saw Jamie at court leaving his house with a bin bag. So he's got a bin bag, leaves the house, disposes of the bin bag and comes back. Nobody's done anything. Nobody followed him. Nobody tried to find this bin bag. It's never been found to this day. Obviously, he was getting rid of the clothes that he was wearing when he attacked Stephen. Stephen's parents began slamming the Met. Doreen said if he was white, it would have been different. And I'm sorry, but it's absolutely right. Of course it would have been. If a white young guy was stabbed in the street after school. Oh, my God. Can you imagine? 
look at like I know it's like a couple of weeks ago I did the case of Ollie Stevens look at how much the police just like blew up with that trying to solve it but <clears throat> because it's a young black guy they're probably just not interested so Doreen was using the media networking to get the word out there for her son herself she then actually gains the support of Nelson Mandela so in case anybody on here lives in the moon. Nelson Mandela was a South African activist and politician who served as the first president of South Africa, South Africa from 1994 to 1999. He was the country's first black head of state and the first elected and fully representative democratic election. So he was a huge, huge thing for South Africa. Um, he was obviously well respected and he actually stood beside Doreen through her whole mission and openly spoke about the Lawrence family. He said in a kind of conference about it that unfortunately black families are so used to it which is awful like I'd like to think of myself and my sister were stabbed to death like I would get a fair treatment so I just don't understand I think this is where I struggle with these cases as well like just to clarify I'm not a racist neither is Samantha so I think that's why I really struggle because I'm just like why would there be any discrimination I don't get it because I just don't feel it but especially back in the 90s this probably was treated as a bit less of importance which is horrific and you know look at Sheku Bio for example that is probably some things that are still happening today which honestly if someone's skin colour bothers you you've got way too much bloody time on your hands like get a grip sorry went on a side note so on Friday the 7th of May 1993 raids were done in the suspect's home two weeks so this is two weeks after they decided to raid the suspect's home so two whole weeks of them being able to destroy evidence the court brothers and Dobson were all arrested now, Norris actually turned himself into the police and likewise was arrested three days later and Knight was arrested on the 3rd of June. Now, they went to Norris's house. He wasn't in, so they, did, uh, they didn't really search the house, but he's the one that's obviously from the kind of big criminal background. So it's a beautiful big house, so they didn't really want to disturb it. Do you know what I mean? So they didn't really look very far because they didn't want to disturb it. Um, they also went and done a search at the Accords house um, it was kind of known to everybody that the Accords had their weapons under their floorboards did the police check the floorboards? no, they don't want to disturb the house so they did fuck all in these searches to be brutally honest with you Samantha God, whereas if it was someone like even our house or whatever oh, you'd have nothing left, you'd have to go out and buy everything else because they would have just thrown everything about and smashed the place up you say that, like, obviously, you see when people, like, have their house checked by police and stuff. Yes, it's shit. And I totally get it if they're coming in and messing up your house. But at the end of the day, you've obviously got yourself into a position for that. Like, I would have no issue if police turned up and like, can I search your house? You're a suspect or something. If I knew I was completely innocent, I'd be like, yeah, crack on. So, it's so funny, isn't it? They took clothes yeah. and checked for DNA. Obviously, let's just ignore the fact that they're probably in that bin bag that no one knows where they are. But sure, check the other clothes. So Dwayne actually did three ID parades. So Dwayne is still about and is helping out. And bear in mind, he has saw his school friend be stabbed to death, basically waited on the ambulance to come, was then blamed, and is now having to do lineups. It's a lot for a child, because he is, he's still quite young. Um, they done three ID parades, and Neela Court and Luke Knight were charged with murder on the 13th of May, because Dwayne was able to identify them. However, he failed to identify the other three, which, no wonder. Like, the guy's probably got quite a lot of trauma from it. And also, trying to identify in an ID parade, I think that must be bloody difficult. So, I actually don't blame the guy at all, really. The investigators interviewed them all and hoped that one would slip up. But they didn't. Of course they didn't, because they all had a perfect story and alibi. They've spent the last two weeks knowing that this is going to happen. So, they've got rid of all their evidence. They've created a solid alibi. So, what did you expect? 
obviously the news is welcomed by Stephen's family and they're very hopeful. And around about this time, by the way, they didn't want Stephen to be buried in, quote, racist soil, so they flew him back to Jamaica for burial. And the exact location of where Stephen is buried is a family secret, so nobody really knows where it is, which is horrible that you've actually felt like the country he's lived in his whole life, they don't want to be buried here. Like, I think that's so, so sad. Um, so just days after the funeral, the charges were dropped on the 29th of July. The Crown Prosecution Service said there was insufficient evidence. So all five of them, they're dropped. An internal review was opened in August 1993 by the Met Police. And on the 16th of April 1994, the Crown Prosecution Service stated they did not have enough evidence for murder charges against them. The two from the lineup, Neil and Luke, are now charged. However, the other three are not because they've obviously been ID'd. But the other three, there is absolutely nothing on them. And I don't believe Neil and Luke said that they were involved. I think that's the whole gang thing, isn't it? The police continued to investigate and had secret cameras in a plug socket in Gary Dobson's flat. This is obviously not allowed in this day and age. Because when I was reading this, I was like, I've missed something. It surely isn't the police that have had a camera. No, no, it was. Um, they were hoping to catch him saying something, but this didn't happen. Don't get me wrong, they caught him having a lot of racist rant, rants about black people or Asians. Um, just trigger warning, because I'm just going to kind of briefly say what they were saying. Um, I'm not going to say any offensive words, but just kind of things he was saying. He was saying things like he wanted to skin them alive, wanted to blow their legs off, he wanted to burn them. So all the really horrific things, all because of the colour of somebody's skin. It's just mental that they thought it was OK to kind of say this stuff, but they didn't say anything about Stephen Lawrence, so they couldn't use it. Now, this is me kind of, that's the kind of story. A lot of the rest I've got to tell you is all kind of, as I said, a lot of them have been let off. So a lot of it is going to be about investigations, prosecutions, kind of a lot of that. So it will get quite technical and techy. So Samantha, get those listening ears on and sharp because if there's something you don't understand, please let me know because it took me a while to kind of get my head around it and I don't want anyone listening and being like, what the fuck is she talking about? Which they probably do most weeks anyway. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I'm kidding. So, oh. thanks. <laughs> in September 1994, the Lawrence family initiated a private prosecution against the initial two suspects and the three others. So not just the two that were charged, they also charged Jamie, Gary and David. So the family were not entitled to legal aid and a fund was established to pay for the analysis of forensic evidence and the cost of tracing and re-interviewing the witnesses. So the families were presented by counsel Michael Mansfield, Martin Surju and Margot Boy, who all worked pro bono. So if you don't know what that means, they all worked for free, which is really, really important. The charges against Jamie and David were actually dropped before the trial for lack of evidence. Um, but the family still pressed them into trial, the three remaining, on April the 18th. The family just had to go for it. They only had one chance as the double jeopardy law was still a law in Scotland. We talk about that a lot. If you're like, what is double jeopardy? You know, if you're like, what is Double Jeopardy? And you're listening to the Crate Pod, go back many episodes. It's our first ever one, but also we mention it quite a lot. And always drop in that episode that we first talked about it. But anyway, on the 23rd of April 1986, the three remaining suspects were acquitted of murder by a jury in the Central Criminal Court after the, ju uh, the trial judge, Mr Justice Curtis, um, ruled that the identification evidence given by Dwayne Brooks was unreliable. So the ID parade was now known as unreliable because he was in such a state. Um, they basically said that he was in such a kind of way that this evidence was not conclusive, which, again, I've kind of briefly talked on. This guy's obviously shook up. He's watched his best friend be killed. 
for a race crime against the colour of his skin as well. Like, of course he's going to be like, what? what? Like, trying to then identify who killed your friend. That's very hard to do. So there's an inquest in 1997 that I'm going to tell you a bit about. So this was obviously an inquest into the death of Stephen, and it was held in February um, 1997. The five suspects refused to answer any questions, claiming privilege against self-incrimination, which they can do. The inquest concluded on the 13th of February, and the jury returned with a verdict after 30 minutes deliberation of unlawful killing in a completely unprovoked racist attack by five white youths. This finding went beyond the bounds of their instructions, so... That's what they've kind of come up with in this inquest. On the 14th of February, the Daily Mail, which normally I'm like, boo hiss, but actually they put on their front page um, the five suspects and labelled them murderers. So the headline read, murderers, the male accuses the men of killing. If we are wrong, let them sue us. And none of them attempted to sue. So they're on the front page of a newspaper, classes murders. And, and that was from the Daily Mail? Uh-huh. Wow. Basically saying, if you're wrong, sue us. And none of them did. Well, you know like, what? If someone for the put... Daily Mail. Yeah, normally we hate the press, but do you know what? Fair enough. And actually, normally, like, if I went into the fucking shop and I was picturing me in the Daily Mail saying, murderer, I'd be suing. But the fact that none of them sued, that says something. Mm-hmm. Underneath the headline appeared pictures of the five suspects, Dobson, Neil, Jamie, and um, Accord, Knight, and Norris. None of the men, I said, ever sued, um, and strong public opinion rose against the accused and the police who handled the case. In the July of 97, an inquiry was ordered by the Home Secretary to identify matters relating to the killing, known as the McPherson Report, which was completed in February 1999. So I'm going to tell you a bit about the McPherson Report. So the Home Secretary, Jack Straw, ordered a public inquiry to be conducted by Sir William McPherson, called, obviously, the McPherson Report, and it was officially titled The Inquiry into the Matters Arising from the Death of Stephen Lawrence. And as I said, it was published. In the report in February 1999, it estimated it had taken more than 100,000 pages of reports, statements and other written on printed documents. It concluded that the Metropolitan Police Service investigating had been incompetent and the officers had committed fundamental errors, including failing to give first aid when they reached the scene, failing to follow follow obvious leads during the investigation and failing to arrest suspects. The report found that there had been failure of leadership by senior Met officers and that the recommendations of the 1981 um, Sacrament Report compiled following race-related riots in Brixton and Toxeth had been ignored. So you're obviously thinking that bit there I understand. So basically there had been a report called the Scarman, um, Scarman Report because there was race-related riots, as I said, in Brixton and way back. So they then did a report on how the Met should kind of deal with things like that and how they should deal with race crimes. Obviously, that had then been ignored. So what they were saying is the Met's doing could have then caused another riot because this is how they kind of they wrote this article on how to deal with race crimes and the Met just bloody ignored it. The report also found that the Met police were institutionally racist. A total of 70 recommendations for reform covering both policing and criminal law were made. These proposals included abolishing the double jeopardy rule and criminalising racial statements made in a private, made in private, sorry. So, as we said, they've got um, the footage of that camera on his plug socket saying they wanted to do all these horrible things to people, but no charges were brought against him. He wasn't charged for hate speech. It wasn't anything. It was just very much like, oh, he didn't talk about killing Stephen, so we don't really need that information. But it's like, actually, that would have been crucial. Um, But, yeah. So, the last bit of the McPherson report is it also 
called for reform in the British civil service, local governments, the national health service, schools and the judicial system to address the issues of institutional racism. Also in 1997, the Lawrence family registered a formal complaint with the Police Complaints Authority, which in 1999 ex is it ex exonerated, exonerated, that's another word I can't pronounce, the officers who exonerated, worked, thank right. you, um, exonerated the officers who had worked on the case of alleged allegations of racism. Now, only one officer, Detective Inspector Ben Bullock, was ordered to face disciplinary charges for ne um, neglect of duty. Bullock, who was second in command of the investigation, was later found guilty of failure to properly brief officers and failure to fully investigate an anonymous letter that was sent to police, but he was acquitted of 11 other charges. Four other officers who would have been charged as a result retired before it concluded. Bullock retired the day after his punishment was announced, so it is amounted to a mere caution because he was retiring. Obviously, off he went with his full pension. Neville Lawrence, Stephen's father, criticised the punishment, saying that Bullock was guilty on all counts. However, a spokesperson for the Met Police said that Bullock had been largely vindic vindicated in the proceedings, which is bullshit. So we're going a bit forward now. So 2002, David Norris and Neela Court were actually convicted and jailed for racially aggravated harassment after an incident involving a plainclothes black police officer. So <clears throat> they fucked up there and off they went to jail. In 2005, the law was changed um, for the double jeopardy rule. So as part of the findings of the Lawrence case, the McPherson report had recommended that the rule against double jeopardy, that means that once acquitted, they can't be tried again. But it was done. So that means that actually you could then redo it. So these recommendations were implemented in the Criminal Justice Act 2003, and this came into force in April 2005. It opened murder and certain serious other crimes, including manslaughter, kidnap, rape, armed robbery, to a second prosecution, regardless of when committed, with two conditions. The retrial must be approved by the Director of Public Prosecutions, and the Court of Appeal must agree to quash the original acquittal because of new compelling evidence. But you know all this anyway, because we've told you this before, or if you do want more information, we do speak a lot about it in the World's End Murders case. On the 10th of March, the Met Police announced that they were actually going to pay Dwayne Brooks 100000 as compensation for the manner which police had handled his complaints about their actions towards him after the murder, which is absolutely right. That guy was treated horrifically. He had witnessed his best friend get murdered and was treated but as nothing but a suspect, not as a grieving friend, not as someone that was trying to save his life. He was simply seen as a suspect because of the colour of his skin. On the 25th of July 2006, the Independent Police Complaints Commission, again the IPCC, announced that it had asked the Metropolitan Police to look into alleged claims of police corruption that may have helped hide the killers of Stephen. So they believe there's obviously police corruption here. Now, this was in a BBC investigation that alleged that the murder inquiry detective sergeant John Davidson had taken money from drug smuggler Clifford Norris, the father of David Norris, a chief suspect in the investigation. So they believed that he had taken money from him not to get the eyes done. Now, a former corrupt police detective turned whistleblower Neil Putman told the BBC investigation that Clifford Norris was paying Davidson to obstruct the case and to protect the suspects. Quote, Davidson told me that there was, they were looking after Norris and that to me meant he was protecting him, protecting his family against arrest and any conviction. Davidson obviously denies any such corrupting, but it's obviously a lot for someone to come out and make up that big a lie. The Met Police Service announced that it was going to open up a special incident room to field calls from the public following the documentary The Boys Who Killed Stephen Lawrence, which was a BBC documentary. The Independent Police Complaints Commission later stated that the claims made in the programme were unfounded. So the mayor kind of denying any wrongdoing, as always. 
On the 27th of July 2006, the Daily Mail repeated its now famous murderer's front page. They posted it again and again. They were not sued. On the 17th of December 2009, the Independent Police Complaints Commission again, um, investigators and officers from the Met's Police Directorate of Professional Standards arrested a former police constable and a serving member of the Met Police staff on suspicion of attempting to pervert the course of justice by allegedly withholding evidence from the original murder inquiry, the Kent investigation and the McPherson inquiry. Now, I'm not 100% sure what this evidence is, but they held evidence. Um, Dr Richard Stone, who sat on the McPherson inquiry, commented that the panel had felt that there was a large amount of information that the police were either not processing or were suppressing and, quote, a strong smell of corruption. Ross Howells, Baroness, sorry, Baroness Ross Howells, a patron of the Stephen Lawrence Charitable Trust, agreed. Lots of people said they gave the police evidence which was never produced. So a lot of people in the black community or that were on Stephen's side, obviously, took evidence that was then never used. So, of course, this is going to be questioned. On the 1st of March 2010, the IPCC announced that no further action would be taken against the two men arrested following concerns identified by the Internal Met Police Service, which is MPS, review of the murder of Stephen Lawrence, and the two of them are released. So that's all five, like all of them released. On the 6th of July 2023, however, um, the CPS decided that the four retired detectives who ran the original case would not face criminal charges for alleged corruption. The mother of Stephen Lawrence said she wanted to see a review of the decision. So that's the most kind of up-to-date thing. Now, we're going to then have a look into the revelations of about undercover police conduct. So I hope you're all kind of staying with me. I know this is a lot of kind of information, but it is worth it to kind of look at how serious this case kind of failed almost. Um, so following the 2012 convictions, further inquiries by both Scotland Yard and the Independent Police Complaints Commission ruled that there was no new evidence to, water, uh, to warrant further investigation. After discussion with Doreen Lawrence, the Home Secretary, Theresa May at the time, commissioned Mark Elson QC to review Scotland Yard's investigations into police corruption. So police corruption is obviously a huge thing. Of course it is. Like, you don't want police corruption. So they then do a report called Stephen Lawrence Independent Review, which was presented to Parliament on the 6th of March 2014, and the report prompted an inquiry into undercover policing, and they said the report was, quote, devastating. So they found that there was possible links between the alleged corrupt officer and the murder of private investigator Daniel Morgan. There was loads coming out about the corruption of the Met. On the 23rd of June 2013, an interview with Peter Francis, a former Special Demonstration Squad undercover police officer, was published in The Guardian. In this interview, Francis stated that while he was working undercover with an anti-racist campaign group in the mid-1990s, he was constantly pressured by superiors to, quote, smear the credibilities of the family of Stephen Lawrence, so as to put an end to the campaigns for a better investigation into his death. After the allegation, the Home Secretary Theresa May pledged to be, quote, ruthless about purging corruption from the police. And the Prime Minister at the time, David Cameron, ordered police to investigate the allegations, saying of them that he was deeply worried about the reports. Which, of course, he should be deeply worried about the reports. It's absolutely horrific to think that, like, you know, all this is kind of going on behind closed doors of the police. Um, just one last kind of thing. In October 2015, an inquiry was set up by the National Crime Agency to investigate allegations that members of the police force shielded the, um, shielded the killers, but there has been no update still. So I'm going to kind of just finish with just some kind of, not nice things, but kind of Stephen's legacy almost. 
So an annual architectural award, the Stephen Lawrence Prize, was established in 1998 by Marco Goldschmidt Foundation in association with the Royal Institute of the British Architects in Lawrence's memory. His mother, Doreen, said, I would like Stephen to be remembered as a young man who had a future. He was well loved and, being, and if he had been given the chance to survive, maybe he would have been one to bridge the gap between black and white because he didn't distinguish between black and white. He saw people as people. In 1995, a memorial plaque was set into the pavement in the spot that he was killed on Wellhall Road. Unfortunately, this plaque has been vandalised several times since then. In 1999, Nicholas Kent designed a documentary play based on the trial called The Colour of Justice. Now, this was staged in the Tricycle Theatre and was later filmed by the BBC. On the 7th of February 2008, the Stevens Lawrence Centre, designed by architect David Ajay, opened in Deptford, South East London. A week later, it was vandalising an attack that was initially believed to be racially motivated. However, doubt was cast on that assumption when CCTV evidence appeared to show one of the suspects to be mixed race. The Stevens Lawrence Charitable, Charitable Trust sorry, is a national education charity committed to the advancement of social justice. The Trust provides educational and employment workshops and mentoring schemes. It also awards architectural and landscape bursaries. In 2008, the Trust with Architects RMGM created an initiative called Architect for Everyone to help promote architecture and creative industries to young people from ethnic minorities. In October 2012, Doreen Lawrence received a Lifetime Achievement Award at the 14th Pride of Britain Awards. Doreen Lawrence was elevated to the peerage as a Baroness on the 6th of September 2013 and is formally styled Baroness Lawrence of Clarendon of Clarendon in the Commonwealth Realm of Jamaica. The honour is rare for being designed after a location in a Commonwealth room outside of the United Kingdom, but she sits on the Labour benches in the House of Lords and is working on specialising in race and diversity. On the 23rd of April 2018, a memorial service to mark 25th anniversary of his death, Prime Minister Theresa May announced that Stephen Lawrence Day would be an annual national commemoration of his death on the 22nd of April every year, starting in 2019. Doreen Lawrence made a statement that Stephen Lawrence Day would be an opportunity for young people to use their voices and should be embedded in our education and wider system regarded of the government of the day. Part of the University of Reading Student Union Building was named after Stephen in 1993 before being refurbished and renamed the Stephen's Lawrence Media Centre in 2013. A Stephen Lawrence Research Centre was also built in De Montfort University located in the Hugh Ashton Building. His mum was appointed the Chancellor of the University in January 2016. The centre will host a series of special events for the 30th anniversaries of Stephen's murder, which was at the start of this year. I don't have the full updates on what that was, but if they come out, I'll obviously post a kind of thing on our Instagram. Stephen's murder was a subject of a three-part documentary miniseries called Stephen, the Murder That Changed the Nation. And this was first broadcast on BBC One in April 2018. Following the BBC investigations, the Met Police publicly then named Matthew White as the sixth suspect on the 26th of June 2023. However, Matthew died in 2021 at the age of 50. A three-part sequel series entitled Stephen was broadcast in 2021. This um, was his name reprised his role as Neville alongside Charlene White as Doreen and Steve Coogan as DCI Clive Driscoll. In July 2010, the Independent described the Lawrence killing, despite it happened more than 17 years previously, as one of the high most high-profile unsolved racially motivated murders. And although that was in 2010, I still think 13 years on, it's absolutely right. It's been 30 years, and I do believe that it's one of the most high-profile unsolved murders, because we know who the murders are. There is just nothing to arrest them with.
So there you go, Samantha. That is the case of Stephen Lawrence. Yeah, thanks very much for covering that. Um, it's very informative as well. You don't realise like all these things that do go on. You know when you just kind of read it yeah. at the surface level, um, but yeah. when you d- delve into it, um, I think as well though. Let's be real, the Met still never help themselves with anything, um, no. especially right now as well. So, um, safe to say, am I shocked about all the handling of it? No. Do I believe it all no, needs to change? terrible. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. And I think as well, give credit where credit's due, things are changing, just not mm. fast enough and not, not like, it should never happen. But you know what I mean. Okay, I agree. Yeah, totally. 